I've had a great time over the last day or so that we've been here chatting to a few of you, and it was really encouraging to hear that last night was helpful for some people hearing about just how our future, God's great end that he has promised for us, has already been secured in the Lord Jesus. And so that was really encouraging, and we've had some great chats and lots of people coming up with questions. I, I forgot to say last night, if you're here and you're not yet a follower of Jesus, if you're still checking out the claims of Jesus, it's fantastic that you're here. I think this is a great place to be for this week so that you can ask all your questions about the Lord Jesus and dig into his word, the Bible, to find out the truth about him. If you want to chat to me and you want to ask me your questions, I'd love to talk to you, particularly if you're seeking and try to understand the Lord Jesus for the first time. So each lunchtime, I sit at that corner table in the dining room. So at lunchtime, if you're not a Christian and you want to come and ask me questions, then just come and have lunch with me. I, if you're a Christian and you've got lots of questions about predestination, don't come to me, right? I mean, you can come to me at breakfast and you can come to me at dinner and we've got question time tonight and you can go for your life. But at lunchtime, I'd love to chat to people who are still checking out the Lord Jesus. And so come and find me. I'm at the corner table just there over the divider and I'd just love you to have lunch with me. If you're feeling a bit nervous, then just grab a Christian friend and say, let's go have lunch with Rowan. In that case, then they can come, but you ask your questions, okay? All right, that'd be great. So, um, and by the way, does anyone want to fill up my water bottle? <laughs> yes, oh, great, yes, education people. <laughs> I've had all these conversations with education people because they keep saying, Rowan, Rowan, could we fill up your water bottle? We'd love to fill up your water bottle. They don't want to talk to me at all. They just want to fill up my water bottle. Talk about no one left behind. I don't feel very loved by the education people. They just, want, they, just want my, they just want my water bottle, Sam. They just want my water bottle. Anyway. No, it's someone... Someone actually filled it up on the way in before, so someone got there. So, yeah, that's right. Let me lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great plan of salvation, the great stream of your sovereignty in which we live our lives. We thank you for the great end that you have brought to reality in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray that tonight you would help us to learn how to live in these last days to your glory. Amen. When I was a high school kid, um, I lived uh, down in the Shire for a while. And I remember driving through Rockdale on the Princess Highway and there was an old man there, like old man, big beard man, who would stand on the side of the Princess Highway with a sign. And the sign read, not joking, the end of the world is nigh, is near, coming, arriving. The end of the world is nigh. He was there every day. That's how he spent the last part of his life, standing on the side of the Princess Highway, holding up a sign, telling the world that the end of the world is coming. I mean, it's a bit of a cultural cliche. You know, fire and brimstone, end of the world is upon us, all of that sort of stuff. But from the Bible's point of view, he was not entirely off beam. The Bible is clear in terms of God's plans and purposes, that great river in which we find ourselves, we are indeed living in the last days. 
The technical word for what we've been looking at this week as we think about the end is eschatology. Eschatos is the Greek word for end, eschatology, study of the end. The traditional eschatology topics are the four so-called last things. Death, judgment, heaven and hell. I say that's the traditional sort of eschatological topic because the problem is with those four topics, death, judgment, heaven and hell, they are all in the future and that makes us think that the end is all about just the future. Well, we know that's wrong, right, from what we saw last night. The end isn't just in the future. God has already made the end a reality in the person of the Lord Jesus. The end has already arrived. The New Testament perspective is that we live now in the last days. So, for example, there on page 26 of your book, the Apostle Peter at Pentecost, soon after Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension, and then Jesus pouring out of the Spirit on his disciples, this is what Peter had to say in Acts chapter 2. He says, This is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my Spirit on all people. So Peter's logic is, if the Spirit has just been poured out, which it certainly has, then it must be the last days now. And the Apostle John puts it even more graphically in the other quote there from 1 John chapter 2. He says, Dear children, this is the last hour. And you can find similar perspectives in other parts of the New Testament, in, in Paul, in 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 1, or in James, or in Hebrews. That same idea that we are in the last days now. So it's been the last days, or even the last hour, for the last 2,000 years. Now, that seems a bit strange. Until you step back and think about that great big river of God's plans and purposes. And then you realise that the last days are all the days of Jesus, the last one. The last days are all the days of Jesus, the last one. You can see there in Revelation chapter 22, Jesus says, Look, I am coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give to each person according to what they have done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. So Alpha and Omega, they're the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. He's saying, I am the A to Z. It's all about me. I'm not just the A and the Z. I'm everything in between as well. I'm the whole lot. When he says, I'm the first and the last, the first means not just the first temporally, the first in time, means the premier, the first is the most important. And the last, well, the last is often the final word, the climax. He's the beginning and the end. The beginning, he's the start and the source of all things. He's the end, he's the completion and perfection of all things. Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And so if Jesus is the last, the last one, 
then I guess eschatology, if it's about the end, it should all be about him. And that's the point that Adrio Koenig makes there in his book. You can see the quote there, it's on page 27. I found his book quite helpful in trying to think about Jesus and Jesus' place in trying to understand the end. He says, the eschatology offered here in his book is not primarily concerned with the last things, although of course some things will be discussed. Instead, this book is first and foremost about the last one, he whom the New Testament calls the end and the last one. Eschatology must be about him because he himself is the realisation of God's purpose in creating the world. The eschatos, that is the end, is a person, not just a set of forthcoming things. The end is a person. That's what we saw last night, Jesus Christ. Adrio continues in the next quote there. He says, It is simply inadequate to speak of Christ as the centre, the hinge or the turning point of history. I mean, how often have you and I heard that, right? Jesus is the turning point of history. I mean, it all sounds magnificent. He says, actually, it's not magnificent enough. He says, of course, he is all these things, but he is much more. He is the end. With Christ's arrival, the end dawns. Remember Jesus saying the kingdom of God is at hand. With his crucifixion, all is fulfilled. Sin is condemned. The devil is defeated. Atonement is made. And with his resurrection, the general resurrection begins. He is the first fruits. Too often, we make ourselves the centre of the story. But in the river of God's plans and purposes, I am not the main focus, nor are you. In his great love, he does care for me and for you, but it's not all about me. I'm not at the centre of what he's doing. His son, the Lord Jesus, is at the centre. You see there another quote there from Jürgen Moltmann. He says, Christian eschatology speaks of Jesus Christ and his future. It recognises the reality of the raising of Jesus and proclaims the future of the risen Lord. Hence the question whether all statements about the future are grounded in the person and history of Jesus Christ provides it with the touchstone by which to distinguish the spirit of Christian eschatology from that of utopia. So get your head around this. Eschatology is about Jesus and his future, not primarily about us. It's only about us because in his great love, our future has now been caught up into Jesus' future. And Maltman's point here is that if you want to sift sure hope that you can rely on, from just wishful thinking, then he says, test whether it is grounded in the person and history of Jesus Christ. That is the touchstone that helps you separate true Christian hope from just wishful, fictional utopia. We hear these utopian dreams all the time. Just in society, we talk about we're really making progress as though we're somehow bettering ourselves as a society by our new insights or our new levels of wokeness, that somehow that is bringing us to progress, a utopian sort of vision. But we also hear it at a personal level. 
You hear it when you go to a funeral and you hear terribly sad about Aunt Mabel, but isn't it good that she's now looking down on us? Just I just know that she's smiling as she looks at each of Wishful, fictional, utopia. Is it grounded in the promises, in the history of the Lord Jesus Christ? Only there can we have a sure hope for the future in his flesh and blood resurrected reality. So, if you look then over the page, at page 28, how should I understand today where we are now, 2023, in the big picture, in the big river of God's plans and purposes. So I've got a bit of a diagram there on the page. Let me explain it to you. I'll build it on the screen bit by bit. First of all, where are you and I living here today in 2023? We are still living in the old age. We are living still under the reign of sin and death. It's still with us today. However, as we saw last night, in the coming of the Lord Jesus, God's kingdom has been established in his death and in his resurrection to new life and his ascension to his Father's right hand. God's kingdom has been established through this Son of Man. As a result, we also live in the new age, the reign of King Jesus. He is living and ruling over this world today. The new age has begun. During his reign, his kingdom is growing. As people come to hear the good news of the Lord Jesus, as we saw last night from Matthew chapter 28, as people go and tell others about the Lord Jesus, then new people come into his kingdom and his kingdom grows. However, we're still waiting for the day when he will return, when he returns as king and God's kingdom comes in all its fullness and we enjoy the new heavens and the new earth for all eternity. Notice when Jesus returns there, the old age will fully and finally come to an end. The old age of sin and death will be no more. So what that means is that we live in the overlap between those two ages. There's various ways it's sometimes described by different people. You might hear it described as the last days. That's just what we read about there in the New Testament. It describes it as the last days, this period of the overlap. Or it might be described as the overlap of the ages because the old age is continuing whilst the new age has already begun. Sometimes it's described as the now but the not yet. That is, we have some of God's promises. His kingdom has been established now, but yet we don't have the fullness of all of that kingdom. And sometimes in more technical writing, it might be described as the inaugurated kingdom of God. That is, God's kingdom has been established. It's begun it's here, but it's not yet complete. It's been inaugurated. Now, why does all of this matter? Well, let me tell you. It matters 
because you need that big picture to make sense of your daily experience. You need that big picture in mind to make sense of your daily experience. Why, why am I still struggling with sickness or pain? Why are you burdened with period pain every month? Or chronic illness? Or lung COVID? Or disability? Why does getting old mean getting frail? The answer to all those questions is because we live in the old age. We still live in that world in which sin and death reign. That's why I keep having to go to funerals. Because you and I still live in a world under the shadow of death. And if we forget that fact and we overcook our eschatology such that we think the age of sin and death has already been removed and we can enjoy the complete fullness of God's kingdom now, then we're going to be wrong-footed by the reality of life. We're going to not understand, why would God let me suffer like this? Our grief will turn into anger against God. We'll get disillusioned with God. We'll think he's not really good or loving or powerful. Because surely if Jesus really is king now, then my life shouldn't be like this. And it's not just hard things like sickness or illness and death. It's also we'll struggle when we have to deal with the reality of sin in ourselves and others. If I overcook my eschatology, I might be shocked when others, including maybe especially other Christians, when other people behave badly. Or maybe when I find myself in a difficult ongoing fight against sin in my own life. I'll start thinking, hasn't Jesus dealt with the problem of sin? Why am I not experiencing freedom from sin in the way I imagine Jesus should give me? Well, the answer is, even though Jesus has come and dealt with the penalty and the power of sin, you and I are still living in these fleshly bodies and we easily fall back into old sinful ways because we're still living in this age of sin and death. And if as a follower of Jesus, you don't realise that reality, then your faith in Jesus can really be shaken by either the sin you have to battle with yourself or when you see sin in others or by the suffering you experience in this age where sin and death still reign. That's what can happen if we overcook our eschatology. The theological term is not overcooking your eschatology, it's having an over-realised eschatology where you make the mistake of bringing what God has promised in the future too much into the present. Because the day will come, it will eventually come, when we are completely delivered from all sin and suffering. But that's not going to happen until Jesus returns and the kingdom comes in all its promised fullness. It's not what God has promised you now. So let's not overcook or overrealize our eschatology. But frankly, like any good meal, there's equally a problem if we undercook it or we underrealize our eschatology. I've had a few conversations today, as I said, where people have said, Oh, it was so good last night to know that the end has already been achieved in the Lord Jesus. Yes, exactly. The end is not speculative or in doubt. It has already become a reality in the living Lord Jesus and he's achieved it for us. That's good news. And if you forget that fact, 
or you ignore that fact, you're going to lose a whole bunch of joy and assurance and confidence and hope that God actually wants you to have, especially while you continue to live in this old age waiting for Jesus to return. If you undercook your eschatology and you forget that the new age has already begun through the death and resurrection of Jesus, you will feel helpless. You will feel trapped in the face of sin. You'll feel depressed and literally without hope, hopeless in the face of suffering. Because who in themselves has the strength to endure through 50, 60, 70 more years of grief? Do you have that in you? If you undercook God's promises and forget what he's already achieved in Jesus and what he's already done in you, you're going to deprive yourselves of truths that God has actually revealed to strengthen and encourage you while you live in this overlap of the ages. So understand the present time in which we currently live. We are in the last days. The overlap of these ages, the old age, yes, of sin and death, and the new age already begun of Jesus' rule as king. And let's keep encouraging each other not to either overcook or undercook God's promises so that we can live wisely and joyfully in the time that we're in. So let's then dig down a bit further into what it means to live as people who know Jesus in these last days. I'm on page 29. The mark of the last days is the Spirit poured out on all people. Bit of a backstory here. What was the problem in Old Testament Israel throughout her entire history? We saw this in talk one yesterday. Well, it's the same spiritual disease, the same spiritual perversity that infects every human heart. They were hard-hearted towards the one true living God. Though he chose them as his people, though he rescued them out of slavery in Egypt, they refused to worship him as God. They rejected his word and his way. So to fix that problem, God was going to have to do something internally. He's going to have to do something in his people, individually. And that indeed, because he's good, is what he promised to do. Have a look there on your page, Ezekiel 36. Just one example of this promise in the Old Testament. The Lord says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Then you will live in the land I gave your ancestors. You will be my people and I will be your God. You can notice there just in that final couple of sentences, echoes of the six Ps we saw that picture the end. God's people in God's place, enjoying God's presence. His presence, in this case, is his spirit within them. Now, the key there to that promise is that all of God's people will have his spirit within them. And as a result, they will want to follow him. This is how God will solve the hard-hearted problem. That's the promise. Fast forward then to the coming of the Lord Jesus. After his resurrection, Jesus makes this very significant promise to his disciples. There on your page in Acts chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. Jesus gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you've heard me speak about. 
For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So God the Father promised it, I've spoken about it, and now the Holy Spirit is about to come upon you. That promised Holy Spirit from Ezekiel 36. And sure enough, that's what happens. At Pentecost, just after Jesus ascended, the Holy Spirit came on all of Jesus' followers. Peter's explanation is there on your page recorded in Acts chapter 2. Peter's told the crowd, God raised this Jesus to life, and we're all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he's received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. So two significant things about the pouring out of the Holy Spirit onto Jesus' disciples. First of all, the experience of that Spirit is the first taste of the new age. The experience of the Spirit is the first taste of the new age. You can see that there, the bottom of the page, Romans chapter 8, verse 23. Paul writes, we have the first fruits of the Spirit. That is... Your experience of God's Holy Spirit in your life is a genuine taste of the new age that has dawned through the resurrection, death and resurrection and ascension of the Lord Jesus. The Spirit is a first fruit of the greater harvest that you will experience. More on that tomorrow night. He's like the first mango of the season. You know when the mangoes finally arrive in the fruit market? or Woolies or Coles, you get there and there's that, they're ridiculously expensive. But it's the first mango of the season. And that's okay because, you know, once I have that mango, God willing, there are many, many more mangoes to come, right? And the prices will go down. That is, the harvest comes once you've had that first mango. The spirit in your life is just the first fruit. It's the first mango of a much greater harvest that God is going to bring to you. That's what we'll explore tomorrow night. But the second thing about the Spirit is that the Spirit is God's deposit in you, guaranteeing everything else that is still going to come. Have a look at the second passage there on your page from Ephesians chapter 1. Paul writes, And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed... You are marked in him with a seal. That's not a type seal, right? You are marked not with a seal, but you are marked with a seal, like a, st- a, a stamp. You are marked with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. The Spirit is God's deposit in you that guarantees your future. If you have any doubts that God will keep his promises to you, then remember, God has put down a guarantee. He's put his Holy Spirit into your heart. Gordon Fee wrote a very fat, big book investigating every reference to the word Spirit in the letters of Paul in the New Testament. It's about literally 900 pages long. All right, you're jumping in at his conclusion here. (laughs) Page 805. 
He says, I have regularly referred to the Spirit as the eschatological Spirit. The gift of the outpoured Spirit meant that the Messianic age had already arrived. The Spirit is thus the central element in this altered perspective, the key to which is Paul's firm conviction that the Spirit was both the certain evidence that the future had dawned and the absolute guarantee of its final consummation. That the Spirit has been poured out into your heart if you're a follower of the Lord Jesus, that is a sign of the last days. That is a mark that we are living in the last days and that Jesus is King. Well, how does all of this relate to the end? Last night we saw how Jesus achieves the end in himself, but that he does it for us in our place as our representative. But the problem of sin within us, well, Jesus dealt with the consequences of sin in his death and resurrection, but what about the ongoing battle with sin that we all face? That's why Jesus achieving the end for us is not enough. Sounds strange to say, but Jesus' work in his death and resurrection is not enough to save us. He also has to do a work in us to transform us, make us new. That's what he does by pouring out his spirit into the hearts of all of his followers. So how does the spirit achieve the end in us? You can see there on page 30, the spirit grants us understanding, faith and new birth. You can only understand or grasp the truths about God with the help he gives you by his spirit within you. Look at what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. He says, Now God has revealed these things to us by the spirit, since the spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. Now we have not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit who comes from God so that we may understand what has been freely given to us by God. But the person without the Spirit does not receive what comes from God's Spirit, because it's foolishness to them. They are not able to understand it, since it is discerned spiritually, or I would say with a capital S, spiritually, by means of the Spirit. That's how you understand the things of God. Without God's Spirit, you won't understand. John Calvin has a beautiful little illustration there on your page. He says, Indeed, the word of God is like the sun, shining upon all those to whom it's proclaimed, but having no effect among the blind. Now, all of us, he says, are blind by nature in this respect. Accordingly, it cannot penetrate into our minds unless the Spirit, as the inner teacher, through his illumination, makes entry for it. So it's the Spirit that grants us understanding of the truths of God about Jesus. But not just understanding. Trusting yourself to God in faith, in response to what you've understood, is also only possible through the Spirit generating faith in you. You can see what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12 verse 3. He says, No one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. Now, of course, you can say the words, Jesus is Lord. That's not what he means. You can't mean it, say it and mean it as a statement from your own heart unless God's Spirit is at work in you. God's Spirit grants you understanding. God's Spirit generates faith. 
and God's Spirit brings new birth. There's a passage there on your page from John chapter 3. The context is that Jesus is having a conversation with a religious Jewish religious leader, Nicodemus. The conversation is about how one enters the kingdom of God. Jesus' answer to Nicodemus was, well, you have to be born again. That was very confusing, understandably, to Nicodemus. What do you mean, born again? That sounds like a physical impossibility. Then Jesus clarifies, I'm not talking about physical rebirth, I'm talking about a spiritual rebirth. He says there, very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised by saying you must be born again. So to be part of God's kingdom requires internal new birth, internal regeneration, a completely new start. Jesus describes it as being born again of water and spirit. Of water, I take it that that's a reference to Christian baptism, which is an outward sign of an inward repentance and faith. Jesus is not actually saying you have to be baptised with water to be saved or to become a member of the kingdom of God. He's saying the proactive personal commitment of repentance and faith that's given expression in baptism, you have to make a personal commitment. You can't just become a Christian without choosing it. It requires a decision. But also have to be born of the Spirit. That inward reality of repentance and faith has to come from God. He is the one who grants it. But how then does the Spirit achieve the end in us? Page 31. I want to think about this in two ways. First of all, I want to think about how does the Spirit achieve the end in us individually? And then about halfway down the page, we're going to think about how does He do it in us together? First of all, how does the Spirit achieve this end in us individually? Well, first and foremost, because of the work of the Spirit, we are a new creation in Christ Jesus. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, you read there, If anyone is in Christ, Paul says, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. When anyone becomes a Christian, the new creation has arrived in the present. You are genuinely a new person when you become a Christian. You're still you, but you have been fundamentally changed at the deepest level. The promised new creation has arrived and it's you. It's not something now merely in the future. What's so new when you become a Christian? Well, your old addiction to rejecting God's word and way, your old commitment, to refusing to worship God, that's gone. You might slip back into those old foolish habits from time to time, but that slavery to rejecting God, that perverse addiction to ignoring Him to our own harm, that has changed. Instead, with His Spirit in you, you want to please Him, even when at times it's a struggle. But there has been a fundamental change at a deep level. 
You might look like the same old car, but under the hood, you've been entirely upgraded and renewed with a new engine. You might look like the same old house on the outside, but inside, it's been gutted and redesigned by God himself for him to live in. That's you if you're a Christian person. The new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. Now, what this means, even though we live in the old age where sin and death reign, what it means at a personal level is that sin and death no longer rule over me or anyone who's a follower of the Lord Jesus. The Spirit, through His personal inward transformation, has freed us from sin and death's rule. You can see what Paul says about that in Romans chapter 8, verses 7 to 9. He says, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. According to this passage, there's only two types of people in the world. People who are bald and people who have bad heads. That's it? No, that's not what it says. There's only two... You've heard that joke, right? God only made so many perfect heads and the rest he had to cover with hair. Okay, all right. There are only two types of people in the world, according to this passage. There are those who are in the flesh and those who are in the spirit. If you're in the flesh, that means... At heart, you are hostile to God. You reject his word and his way. But if you've become a Christian, then God's spirit is in you and you're no longer in the flesh, even though your body is literally flesh and blood. You have had that fundamental change. You are now in the spirit because the spirit is in you. So what does that mean for living now in the last days? Well, it means... You should follow the Spirit's leading. Reading on in Romans chapter 8, there on your page, from verses 12 to 14. Therefore, brothers and sisters, writes Paul, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. I mean, like me, you might have heard people talk about being led by the Spirit to do all sorts of things. But actually, what the Spirit leads us to do, according to Romans 8, is to kill off sin in your life. That's what the Spirit leads you to do. Kill off sin. Become more like Jesus. Every time you resist temptation and do what's right, that's you putting sin to death in the power of the Spirit. The way to live wisely in the last days is to follow the Spirit's leading and put sin to death in your life. And in that way, 
the end is being achieved in us. The idea that we're new creations in Christ with the blessing of his spirit, that has big implications for your life. It has big implications for what it means to live life to the full when time is short. Because the world around us, which frankly doesn't know the one true living God, doesn't recognise him as God, the world around us is convinced that life to the full is found in the things of the world. You want to have life to the full? Then that's about power, success, money, fame, status, respect, cars, clothes, travel, houses, pets, food, followers or family. That's life to the full in the world's eyes. Surely that's life to the full. It sounds great. But it's confronting to get the Bible's take on these things. Turn with me in your Bible to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 to 18. I'll give you a moment to find it or call it up on your phone. 1 John chapter 2. Verse 15 to 18. Here's some wisdom from God about living life to the full when time is short. 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 to 18. John writes, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world... Love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, and then look how he describes those things I just described. Everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but everyone who does the will of God lives forever. Dear children, this is the last hour. Notice how it describes the things in the world, the lust of the flesh, the worldly longings that we can entertain, whether that be for power or prestige or status or sex, the lust of the eyes, the things we want to take for ourselves, whether it be money or wealth or houses or whatever others might have. And what he says, the pride of life, pride that comes from your achievements in life or from what you have or have done. Those lusts and pride, he says, are from the world. They're not of God. Moreover, this world and its desires are passing away. Indeed, he says, this is the last hour. It's the one who does the will of God, he says, who follows the Spirit's leading and puts sin to death. That's the one who lives forever. Life to the full is found in doing the will of God, not in pursuing the things of the world. It's especially so since this world and its desires is passing away. Time is short. Now, that might seem like actually a really hard thing to believe, that life to the full is not found in all of those worldly things. So let's bring it back to the Lord Jesus as a case study. Did Jesus live life to the full? I mean, 
you probably won't go, well, the answer is probably yes. I mean, he's Jesus. So yes, he lived life to the full. Well, hang on. It, it actually doesn't seem like he did. He was hated. He was persecuted. He had no place to call home. He was falsely accused and he was executed with criminals in a most brutal way. That does not sound, really, does it, like life to the full. But what Jesus was doing in all of those things was demonstrating his love of the Father. He was resisting the lusts of the world and instead doing the will of God. And he did indeed rise again as a result and now lives forever. So in the light of eternity, Jesus did and does enjoy life to the full. See, the danger when time is short is short-sightedness. The danger when time is short is short-sightedness. Hand up if you are actually short-sighted. No, no shame, I'm not God. Hand up if you're short Yeah, be proud. Short-sighted, yeah. Look, that's the only time in your life you're ever going to get to do that, right? You just may as well grab it while you can. Live life to the full. Um, For the rest of you, I mean, those who are short-sighted, you know what short-sightedness means, right? But let me explain it for everybody else. Short-sightedness means you have trouble seeing things in the distance. They might just be a bit of a blurry mess, frankly, depending on how short-sighted you are. We all tend to be spiritually short-sighted. We tend to only think about the now and not the eternity to come. But the danger when you're short-sighted is you really don't know what's going on around you because you can't see it, sometimes until it's too late. I know a woman who is quite short-sighted and when when she was a kid, before she had contacts... Like many others, she played netball for a local team. Except that, because she was quite short-sighted and didn't wear contacts, she often didn't see the ball coming towards her on the court until the very last second. Let me tell you, she developed very fast reflexes. (laughs) Where's the ball? Okay, (laughs) over and over and over again. High adrenaline, those netball games. But see, sometimes you don't have time to react. Eternity is coming. Can you see it? No? Eternity is coming. Can you see it? Or are you short-sighted? Are you throwing yourself after the things of this world, the lusts of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, hoping that in them you will somehow know life to the full? Please don't be so foolish. Put in the contacts of God's word. Put on the glasses of what he has revealed here to us so that you can see what's coming. For this world and its desires is passing away. It's the one who does the will of God who will live forever. And God in his mercy has already made you a new creation in Christ Jesus. So follow the leading of his spirit within you and put to death sin in your life. That is God's will for you. And it is the secret to life to the full when time is short.
Let's then think about how the end might be achieved in us together. There's a bit of a missing heading there halfway down your page. The end achieved in us together. Because God's plans for us are not just for us as individuals, but us together as his people. So my question to start with is, what is the church? That is, when Christians gather together in community, how should we think about our life together? And how is it related to the end? Two passages there, just on your page. Philippians chapter 3, first of all, verses 18 to 20. Paul writes there, Many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. But notice then what he says about followers of Jesus. But our citizenship is in heaven. So we live here, but we belong somewhere else. Our citizenship is from another place. Peter expresses something very similar in 1 Peter chapter 2. He says, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. We're strangers here living away from our home. Now, some of you know well what that's like, right? Maybe you're an international student. You know what it's like to be a foreigner and an, maybe not an exile, but someone who's, whose citizenship is from another place. Or maybe you've lived overseas for some extended period of time and you have a bit of a sense of what it means to be a foreigner. It means that this culture that I'm in and its ways, it's not my home. Well, that's the case for us together as Christians. This world and its ways is not our home. This world and its ways is not our home. So what does that mean for us as Jesus' church? Well, I've got a bit of a summary there on your page, how I think that the Bible teaches us about the church, and it'll come up on your screen. You can fill in the blanks. What is God's church? This is page 32. The church is a spirit-empowered, eschatological outpost, living the vision and values of Jesus' coming kingdom. What is the church? It's a spirit-empowered, eschatological outpost. We're living the vision and values now of Jesus' coming kingdom. And we're doing that in the midst of the world. We're not living the vision and values of the world around us. We stand out by living the vision and values of Jesus' coming kingdom in the power of his spirit. Now, that will make us stand out in all sorts of ways. I'm just going to pick on two as we come to an end tonight. Two ways where I think if we live the vision and values of Jesus' coming kingdom, if we do that together, we will look really, really different to the world around us. We will stand out markedly as Jesus' followers. The first way is by showing a love that reaches across worldly boundaries. Our world is extremely parochial. 
It loves only its own, people who are the same as them. But that's not the vision of Jesus' coming kingdom. Look at how Jesus' coming kingdom is described in Revelation chapter 7. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Notice there people from every nation, tribe, people and language. In Jesus' coming kingdom, there are no racial boundaries. No matter what country or culture you come from, they are all one in the Lord Jesus. And so, in Jesus' church, we're called to live that vision and value now. We treat one another as God has treated treated us with love and forgiveness and welcome. Look what Paul says in Colossians chapter 3 on page 33. In Christ, he says, there is not Greek and Jew, not circumcision and uncircumcision, no barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and in all. Therefore, as God's chosen ones, holy and dearly loved, put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving one another if anyone has a grievance against one another. Just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also are to forgive. Above all, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. The vision is of God's people gathered together across all racial boundaries. And so we live that value and vision now amongst God's people. Now, that sounds all very great in theory. My question is, how do we actually do that in practice? What are you like at relating to and loving those in Christ who are very different to you? Our world is deeply suspicious of people who are different. That's why there's racism and ageism and ableism and classism. That's what we experience in the world. And you've probably experienced that in the world. But amongst God's people, his new creations in Christ, our experience should be radically different. Because we're living the vision and values of Jesus' coming kingdom. Sometimes I think... Maybe we don't help ourselves because we organise our Christian communities on homogeneous lines, whether that be cultural or linguistic or ageist even. So all the oldies go to church in the morning and then the families after that and then the young, hip people at night. That's how we do church, right? Even on campus, the international students, oh, they go over to focus and the local students there in other faculties, or we go the undergraduates here and we put the postgraduates and staff over there, or even the faculties, we have the art students over there, we don't have to trouble them with the engineers who are over there, or the ACES community. We probably don't help ourselves, do we, by splitting up like that? Now, there are clear advantages of splitting up like that. It makes connecting and communicating easy, because you understand where each other are coming from. There's great strengths for evangelism, because we know how to reach people who are similar to me or to you. So there's pragmatic advantages, but there are at least two significant dangers that we have to be mindful of. 
First of all, when we do that, split up like that, we can forget the wonder and the beauty of the multicultural kingdom of God with people from every nation and culture praising God together. Isn't it great singing in our different heart languages together? And if we lose that vision, we may stop being the people that God has called us to be. And we start just looking the same as the rest of the world. Second problem, though, is when we split up like that, I can forget that I need to relate to and love those who are different to me. I can just leave the awkward engineers to the awkward engineers and I can just leave the very not will they ever stop talking art students to the will they ever stop talking art students. I can just like, and I'll leave the internationals to the internationals and I'll leave those from Muslim backgrounds to those who understand Muslim backgrounds. I'll just, I'll, I'll just get on and talk. I can forget that I need to relate and love to those who are different to me. I need to keep saying to myself, I'm called to live the vision and values of Jesus' coming kingdom. Now, if we do that, how different do you think we'll be to the rest of the world? How might our light shine for Christ at Sydney University? We will be massively different to the world And what's more, it will open up doors for us to take the gospel to places that are less reached and less resourced because we're no longer fearful of those who are different to us. So that's first way we can be different, love that reaches across boundaries. The second way we can be different is through faith-filled financial interdependence. See, our world has a constant and deep-seated worry about financial security. Worrying about financial security is a lifelong preoccupation for most people in our society. It is a source of lifelong effort and endless anxiety. That worry about financial security drives a lot of decisions And also, frankly, a lot of well-meaning advice that you probably receive, often from parents or Christians or others. But Jesus has a radical message about how his followers should live out the vision and values of his coming kingdom in this part of life. Look at what he says there in Luke chapter 12. Therefore I tell you, says Jesus to his disciples, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear, for life is more than food and the body more than clothes. And do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Do not worry about it, for the pagan world runs after all such things and your Father knows you need them. But seek his kingdom and these things will be given to you as well. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out. A treasure in heaven that will never fail, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. This is a a radical message. Instead of worrying about the future and storing up money and possessions for yourself, Jesus says, seek first the Father's kingdom, sell your possessions so that you can help the poor. He says that not because you don't need food and clothes and a place to stay. You do. And he says your loving Heavenly Father knows that you need those things. But his promise to you 
is that as you seek his kingdom, he'll provide for your material needs. So you don't need to anxiously store up stuff for yourself. You can eBay your stuff and give the cash to the needy because he promises to give you what you need as you seek his kingdom. But how? How will he provide for each of us as we seek his kingdom? Well, the answer is he'll provide through the rest of us. Have a look there in Acts chapter 4. This picture of the Christian community in the early days after Jesus had ascended to his father. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone who had need. See, our world has as its vision and values financial independence. You should depend on no one because ultimately you can't trust anyone else to deliver. So true wisdom is financial independence. And it's largely fueled by fear. But instead of fear-fueled financial independence, the vision and value lived out amongst Jesus' followers in Acts chapter 4 is faith-filled financial interdependence. As we seek God's kingdom together, he will provide enough between us so there's no needy person amongst us. Not because we've all successfully stored up a mass of money each in some sort of triumph of fear-fueled financial independence. No, because we've now sought to live out the vision and values of the coming kingdom, where there will be no more poverty or need or selfishness. And the power of God's Spirit within us, we've sought to live out that kingdom vision and value now, in the present. Because by God's grace... We are his spirit-empowered, eschatological outpost, living the vision and value of Jesus' coming kingdom in these the last days. Well, I've probably given you a fair bit to chew over tonight, I reckon. So I'm going to give you three minutes just to jot a few things down there in the response wheel. Something, maybe a new thought, something that you're thankful for, a question that you have a response you'd like to make and maybe some good news to share and then we'll sing our final song.